Good morning, church. Let us turn in our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4. Grateful for Clayton and all the volunteers who do such an excellent job leading us in worship. Ephesians 4 this morning, we are reading verses 11 through 16. 11 through 16. Please follow along as I read God's word. And he, meaning Christ, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Would you pray with me? Lord, we give you thanks for your word, which is sufficient to bring life and unity. And we pray, Lord, this morning for your help, for we do Indeed, recognize and we acknowledge that apart from your spirit, uh, we can do nothing. And so, Father, we pray that the spirit will accomplish his purposes for us this morning. May we be further sanctified. May sinners come to repentance. And may Christ be exalted above all things. And these things we ask. In the name of Jesus, your son, amen. Amen. Well, as we look at verses 11 through 16, we are bringing our considerations on Christian unity to a close. Believe it or not, it only took 12 sermons. And it is a glorious end indeed. Now, suffice it to say, of course, that the practical need and the biblical mandate to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, those two things will never go away as long as we remain in this fallen world. Maintaining the unity of the spirit will always require a concerted effort and ongoing intentionality on our part. Why? Simply put, here's the truth. Divisive people and divisive messages will always be around. Sin always disrupts. Satan will always hate the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we must always be vigilant. We must always be on guard. The world is not a playground. The world is a battlefield. 
And as I said last Sunday, no church will ever be exempted from divisions. No matter how healthy it may seem to be, the church will always have enemies. Some will come from the outside, which is expected, but more shockingly still, some will arise from within. This is why the analogy of the body is so helpful when we think of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes the human body is attacked by an outside virus and it comes in and it disrupts the health. At other times, however, the body will develop bad toxins, bad things from within, causing severe health issues. But regardless of where these attacks come from, we all know that there are literally thousands of ways in which our bodies can suffer. The same holds true for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a body of believers and therefore susceptible to both external and internal attacks that can and will disrupt the unity of the church. Now, as a reminder, I've said this a few weeks ago, but I need to remind you of this. The Bible doesn't play games when it comes to divisiveness. It does not play games when it comes to divisiveness, strife within the church. It is a serious matter. In fact, the apostle Paul used the most severe words against people who are divisive in any church. Here's an example of what the Bible says in Titus chapter three, verse 10 and 11. We read from the apostle Paul as for the person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. How serious is the matter of divisiveness in the church? It is so serious that if you ever encounter a divisive person within the church and they are not willing to repent, you can know that person might not be a Christian. That person is self-condemned. People who promote division through their words, their comments, their actions, their attitudes, or their ideas, and go on without repentance are in what we could call Paul's blacklist. Paul took it so seriously that he says, if they don't repent of their divisiveness, have nothing more to do with them, have nothing more to do with them. Leave them alone. They are self-condemned. They don't belong to the family of God. You cannot have a more serious warning than that one. I don't care how good you look on the outside or how eloquent your arguments are. If you are divisive, you are a danger to the church period. So why do we need all these sermons on unity? Because the danger of division will never go away. It will never go away. Satan is very much alive and active. Sin is very much still present within us. And it would be foolish to think otherwise. Now, today we're looking at what is arguably one of the strongest cases for unity that we see in the letter of Ephesians. And I have entitled this message, the four non-negotiables of Christian unity which I've been told is the longest uh, title uh, to date. And uh, <laughs> it was a struggle to put it on the screen. So I apologize for that. I should have said the, the four essentials or something shorter like that. But uh, why do I mean by, the, by non-negotiables? Well, exactly that. 
right? What I mean by that is if any church is missing any of these four, uh, it will not be possible to maintain the unity in a Christian sense. So here's the first non-negotiable. Here's the first essential of Christian unity. According to verse 11, gifted ministers of the word, gifted ministers of the word. Consider verse 11 once again. And he, meaning Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. In verse 11, the apostle Paul gives us a list of five gifts that the Lord Jesus has given to his church. All these, of course, according to what we read last Sunday, are gifts that come from the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ. What I said last week was that when Jesus ascended into the heavens, he sent the Holy Spirit, and it is he who equips the church with these five gifts. Well then, what are the gifts? They are as follows. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Did you notice something quite unique about these gifts? Did you notice what they all have in common? Primarily two things. Number one, these gifts are all people. People. Right? Interesting. And number two, all these gifts, all these five, are related to the proclamation of the word of God. They are all related to the word of God and proclaiming it. So even though all Christians have Christ-given gifts to serve the church, these gifts mentioned in verse 11 are very unique and for a very specific purpose. And they do not apply to every single Christian. So let's briefly see what they are, and then we'll think through how these are important for Christian unity. First, what are the apostles and prophets? Well, we already have an idea of what the apostles and prophets are. Consider with me chapter 2 of Ephesians, verses 19 through 20. Here Paul mentions the apostles and prophets, and he says this, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Verse 20, built on the what? The foundation of who? The apostles and prophets. Okay, members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Now consider with me something similar the apostle Paul said in chapter three, beginning in verse three, he says that the mystery or how the mystery was made known to me, says Paul, by revelation, as I have written briefly. And then in verse five of chapter three, he says, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the spirit. So who are the apostles and who are the prophets? They are the ones to whom Christ sovereignly gave the task of establishing the foundation for the church through their teaching ministry. To them, Christ gave a very special calling and a very special revelation, which was not given to anyone else. They were very unique, the apostles and prophets. This is why the apostles and the prophets are gifts to the church. We are the fruits of the teaching ministry of the apostles and the prophets. Today, thousands of years later, we stand as Christians upon the shoulders of the apostles and the prophets who spoke God's revelation for our salvation and our edification. 
So therefore, we can read the words of Jeremiah and Isaiah and Moses and Paul and Peter. And when we do, we consider them to have authority over us because these men were given a call as apostles and prophets. It was a foundational role. So what we know today as Christians, we know because of the apostles and prophets, foundational gift to the church. What about the evangelists, the shepherds and the teachers? Who are they? Well, they are also gifts of the Lord Jesus to his church because they are the men who take what was deposited by the apostles and the prophets in the writings and they do essentially three things, right? They make it known through evangelism, they apply it through shepherding, and they explain it through teaching. There you have, there you have all the gifts. I am not saying that all these gifts are to be found in one single man. Sometimes that can be the case. But the point is that all these gifts are proclamation gifts related to the word of God. Christ gave this man to the church for the purpose of Bible proclamation, application, and explanation. So you have the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. But as we have already understood, all these gifts are to be seen within the context of Christian unity. These are gifts that help maintain the Christian unity within the church. How does that work? Well, one commentator put it this way. He said this, and I quote, teaching gifts, meaning the the, the gifts of explaining, applying, making the word known, teaching gifts are of paramount importance for nothing builds up the church like the truth of God's word. End quote. Nothing builds the church up like the truth of God's work. Word. If you think about it, the Christian life and Christian unity included is carried forward and maintained through written and spoken words. This is where God has placed his power. It is in written words, things that you read and things that you hear. This is how church unity is maintained. And it is sustained by written and spoken words. This is God's chosen instrument to build the church, to sustain the church, to protect the church, to love the church, and to bring the church into her final state. And the way God does all this is through gifted men, gifted men who can take the written word and make it known through evangelism, apply it through shepherding, and explain it through teaching. And those are the gifts God has given to his church. And that's what we need for Christian unity. Also, this means the following. If you are going to be an agent of unity within the church, rather than an agent of division, you need to place yourself under the authority and the ministry of the word of God. It is an obvious implication of these gifts. You need to make it a priority in your life to be under the teaching of God's word. Let me remind you of this one hard to swallow, pride shattering truth. And is this, we are all like sheep. We are all like sheep. I I tell you what, there there are plenty of other animals out there that could have been chosen as an analogy for the church and for you and I, but the Lord chose sheep. It's not very flattering. Now, maybe you're saying to yourself, well, I am not your typical sheep. 
I am unique. I'm different than the rest of the sheep. No, you're not. We are all like sheep. And what do they do? Well, they all go astray. They can all be easily deceived. All of them. That's the nature of sheepness. Therefore, you cannot pretend that you can be a Christian and you can live your Christian life without being shepherded by the word of God. This is why the Lord has blessed you and I with a plurality of elders here at GCC. It's not because we just thought one day that would be a good idea, right? This is why the Lord has structured the church in the way he did. These six men, the elders, are placed over your life to do all these things, to make the word known through evangelism, to apply the word of God through shepherding, and to explain the word of God through teaching. This is why the elders are over you, over your life, and we need it all. We need all of it. I can guarantee you this. People who create division are normally going to be the ones who never take seriously the ministry of the word of God in their own lives. What do I mean by that? They don't make the ministry of the word a priority in their lives. Here is what I'm trying to say. You not only need to sit under the ministry of the word of God, but guess what? You also need to obey it. Obey the word. You see, there is a big, there's a massive difference between just sitting under faithful preaching and teaching and actually obeying what you hear. There's a massive difference. You need both. Maybe some of you are very comfortable at the sitting level, sitting under the ministry of the word level. You can endure the word proclaimed and taught. You can endure me every Sunday and you're fine with it. It's just 45 minutes, give or take, sometimes closer to an hour, but who cares, right? Maybe you're comfortable with that. You can take it. You can take 45 minutes of this guy um, talking to you and you're fine with it. But when the, the, when the word says to, for example, keep the unity with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, you can simply dismiss it. And you speak in anger and you are quick tempered. You don't care about humility and patience and bearing with one another in love. Listen, sitting under faithful teaching and preaching is half of it. You need to take obedience very seriously. If you fail in either one of these, you will become an agent of division. This is what evangelists, shepherds, and teachers do in our lives. They make the truth known, they seek to apply it, and they work to explain it so that we might obey what we hear. Therefore, divisions in the church are primarily an issue of disobedience to the word of God. Now, that's the first non-negotiable. The second non-negotiable is this. Out of verse 12, selfless service for the common good. Selfless service for the common good. Verse 12 says this, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Now, I need to address here something briefly that is important, that is relevant to our discussion. And I will do so by posing a question. Is the ministry or service in the church reserved for a select few, namely 
the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers? Or is it a call that belongs to the entire body of Christ? In other words, do we leave the work of ministry to the professional, quote unquote, professional clergyman? Or is this a call for the entire body? Well, believe it or not, there has, there has been a lot of division over this throughout the history of the church. Some take a strong position and insist that the work of the ministry in the church belongs exclusively to the professionally trained clergymen, the ones that have gone through seminary training. And this is the view that we could call the consumer slash service view. Okay. What does that mean? Well, you come to church on Sunday, you get a product, meaning you get teaching from the word in this case, you know, from, from the scripture. And then you go home to your regular life and you never get involved in the life of the church. You leave that to the professionals, quote unquote professionals. Others take the position that in the church, which is the other extreme in the church, everyone should be preaching and everyone should be teaching. I've seen churches personally, I've seen churches where they literally would, will say to the congregation as the worship service starts, they will actually say, if anyone has a word they want to share with everyone else, come up and share it. Now, I don't like earthquakes, but that would be a right time for one. You do not want to open the door like that. I've seen disasters in churches because of that. What should we think? Well, it all depends on how we read these verses. This week, I took my copy of the King James Version. And this is how verse 12 reads in the King James. It says that the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers were given for the equipping, for the perfecting of the, church, the saints, for the work of the ministry, and for the edifying of the body of Christ. That's how the King James reads it. Okay, all these, these five men, these five functions were given to the church for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, and for the edifying of the body of Christ. What does that sound like? Well, it makes it sound like the work of the ministry within the church belongs to these five functions. They are the ones who do it all. The ESV, however, puts it very differently. And that's the one that I'm preaching from. It doesn't say that these gifted men are there for the perfecting of the saints and for the work of the ministry. But it says that those men are there to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. There's a huge, huge difference. The ESV makes it very clear that the work of the ministry or the work of service in the church doesn't belong to a select few men. These men are gifted in unique ways, but the purpose of their gifts is to equip you to equip the body so that everyone within the body can serve one another. That's what the word ministry means, by the way. Ministry only means service. That's what ministry is. That's the work of the ministry is to serve. So as you and I submit to the word of God and seek to live in obedience to it, we are being equipped to serve the entire body. So clearly and obviously then, not everyone is called to be a pastor or a Bible teacher in the formal sense. That's, this is why I'm the one here and is not you here, right? So in a formal sense, I've been called to do this, not you. Nonetheless, all of us, every single one of us has been called to live by the word. So you may not formally be here in the pulpits like me, but you are also called to know the word, to speak the word, to apply the word, and to explain the word. So if you're a husband and you're a father, 
you're called to do this with your own family, right? You have to explain it. You have to know it. You have to teach it. You have to apply it. And if you're a member here, you're called to do that with others. Some of you, I know, have been actively seeking to be evangelists at work. And some of you have told me how uh, you're trying to implement evangelism in your work relationships. And some of you are doing doing it a fantastic job engaging others in Bible-informed conversations. Some of you are doing that actively within this church. You are seeking others out so that you can have these Bible conversations and apply the word of God to real life issues. What is all this? What, what is the name for it? Well, Paul calls it building up the body of Christ. That is what building up the body of Christ looks like. That is the work of the ministry. Granted, you do it under the guidance and the leadership of the elders put over you, but you are called to do it. Paul said it beautifully in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7. Paul said this, To each one is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good, for the common good. Let me ask you this. Are you a person who builds others up? Are you in the business of edifying those around you? Are you aware of the fact that the people around you need you to exercise the gifts that the Lord has given you? If not, it could be because you are quickly forgetting that the Christian life is not primarily about you, but about the body of Christ, about the body of Christ. Also, please notice the intentionality that is required of us. The words building up strongly imply activity, motion, movement. You can't build anything up while being passive. And just as an example of this, I cannot tell you, how much I appreciate those of you who are actively pursuing to become biblical counselors. It is, it is, it is incredible that so many of you are seeking to be equipped to become biblical counselors. And I just want to say thank you for your commitment to the life of this church. You're doing the work of the ministry. You want to serve others. You're building up the body of Christ. You want to know the Bible so that you can apply it to the issues of life that others are going through. And you know what else I want to mention here? Who else I want to mention? I want to mention those who have and are suffering well in the midst of this body. Those who have and are suffering well and who are seeking to do so to the glory of God. Why do I mention those who have and are suffering well and to the glory of God? Well, I felt compelled to mention them because they also serve to build up the church. A Christian who seeks to glorify God in his or her suffering is serving the rest of the body. Is serving the rest of the body. He or she is also building us up. Several months ago, we noticed how Paul interpreted his own suffering as God's special tool by and through which he spreads glory to other believers. Paul's suffering was, some, was someone else's path to glory, and we saw that several weeks ago. Brothers and sisters, the suffering that takes place within this body is also meant to build us up. Let us remember and be clear about this. It is in the body of Christ, godly, humble suffering is never wasted, but always used for mutual edification. In fact, when, I, when I, I, I believe that I grow as a Christian 
every time I see a person suffering well and to the glory of God. Now, here's the third non-negotiable. Third non-negotiable of Christian unity. Steady growth in Christ-likeness. Steady growth in Christ-likeness. Let me read verses 13 and 14. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we no long, may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Based on this, Christ-likeness consists primarily of growth in three areas of life. Three areas of life. Now, this is not an exhaustive list, but I'm just drawing this out of these verses. First, notice with me the area of knowledge. If you want to be Christ-like, you need to grow in the area of knowledge. Paul talks about the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. It goes without saying, then, that unity cannot be maintained apart from ongoing and growing theological knowledge. You have to grow in your knowledge. Once again, I need to remind you that Paul is using here the word faith comprehensively. Remember, remember what I said two months ago? <laughs> that's, that's always a funny question. Everybody's like, <laughs> of course we don't. Well, two months ago or so, because I don't remember either, I said that there are two ways that you can understand the word faith. One is the individual subjective faith that you've placed in the Lord Jesus Christ. But the Bible also uses the word faith comprehensively as a set of beliefs that we, we believe as Christians. That is how Paul is using it here. We need to grow comprehensively in our understanding and the knowledge of the system of belief that we have. That is the faith. So the faith in which we need to attain unity is a reference to the core doctrines that we believe as Christians and the knowledge of the son of God. I believe to also be a reference to everything that being a follower of Jesus entails in terms of knowledge. Christ-likeness, which is a non-negotiable Christian unity, happens through greater knowledge of biblical truth, never apart from it. Therefore, we must reject the type of mentality that says, give me more of Jesus, less of doctrine. That is a false dichotomy. That doesn't exist. There is no such thing as growth in Christ likeness apart from growth in knowledge of who he is. It's simply that dichotomy, that distinction doesn't exist. And it, what's scary, I've told you the story before, right? There are seminary students that are graduating from seminary. And, and I talked to one that was about to graduate in California. And he told me this. He said, I said, uh, what do you want for ministry? And he said, you know, all I want is for my, when I become a pastor, all I want is for, for my people to love Jesus. I don't want all this doctrine stuff because it's divisive. Anyway, it's California. I know, but uh, it's still, it's, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a bad thing. It's a dangerous thing. Now, the second aspect, the second aspect of Christ's likeness is uh, the area of maturity. Maturity. If we're going to see steady progress in Christ likeness, which is a non-negotiable element of Christian unity, we must become mature. We must become mature. This is the point uh, of what Paul says in the second half of verse 13, 
where we read that we must all attain to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The obvious question at this point is, what is maturity? Are you a mature person? What is maturity? What, it, what does it mean to be mature? Well, we could put it simply as growing up, right? We need to grow up. How many parents have, have said that to their kids? Would you please grow up? We need to grow up. This, is, this has the, the idea of becoming stable in your life. But it, it is even more specific still. If you keep reading into verse 14, you will find Paul's explanation or definition of maturity, which is also the third area of Christ's likeness. In verse 13, he tells us to grow up, to become mature. And then in verse 14, he gives us the reason. What is the reason? So that we may no longer be children. So that we may no longer be children. What, happened to, what happens to children? Well, they are tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. I was so tempted, so tempted this week to just do a sermon on that one verse. But I didn't. Maybe I should. So what is the third area of Christ's likeness? So we have knowledge, we have maturity. What is the third area? that we need to, to have in order to keep the unity within the church is nothing more and nothing less than Bible-informed discernment. Bible-informed discernment. So even though we could say so much more about maturity, here is in, here's what the context tells us in these verses. It is primarily an issue of discernment. In fact, I would argue that verse 14 is a great definition of discernment. And it is simply this. Ready? We must develop, if we're going to keep the unity of the church, we must develop the ability to tell the difference between what is false and what is true. That is the bottom line. It is, in fact, did you know that being discerning is your responsibility? Did you know that you are accountable before Christ to be discerning and to know the difference between what is false and what is true? You're accountable to Christ and to the church to exercise the powers of your discernment. So don't be or don't remain a doctrinal child, but become a theological adult. So when we consider Christ's likeness as growth in knowledge, progress in maturity and the development of discernment, we conclude this Christ likeness is not instantaneous. It requires consistency. It requires discipline. It requires perseverance. Christ likeness is a lifetime commitment. It is a lifetime commitment. You simply can't become Christ like by going to a conference or by reading one book the conference and the book may help, but those are not the final step. We keep going. We keep going. You, you see, it, it implies an awareness that I'm not there yet. Why is all this important to Christian unity? Let me, let me try to break this down quickly. A united church will be a church whose members are committed to ongoing growth in the faith. 
This is because, as I already said, Christ-likeness is not instantaneous, but a lifelong process. It is like smoking meat. I've been thinking about smoking meat because it is so good. But you know something about smoked meat? If you want, if you want it really smoky, which is, which is the kind I like, really smoky, you better have patience, right? It doesn't happen in an hour. I've tried that. It doesn't work. You need a lot of hours for, for the smoke to really penetrate the, the fibers of the meat and for the flavor to come out. Christ-likeness operates in this way. It is a slow-burning process of discipleship. This is Christ-likeness. It's a slow-burning process of discipleship that never happens overnight. Therefore, a united church will have members committed to lifelong learning. But here's another important reason why Christ-likeness matters to the unity of the church. As we already saw, Christ-likeness involves the development of Bible-informed discernment. Right? My friends, few things are more dangerous to the unity of the church than Christians who lack discernment. Immaturity in the faith can become one of the greatest tools for division. Why? Because spiritual immaturity is the door to theological deception. Don't forget that. Spiritual immaturity is the door to theological deception. One pastor, Sinclair Ferguson, explains that one of the signs of spiritual immaturity is discernment deficit. You, you begin to lose the ability to, de- to determine what is false and what is right. And you're beginning to accept ideas that are actually dangerous. And Sinclair Ferguson speaks of discernment in this way. And I love the way he defines it. And I quote, spiritual discernment involves the ability to distinguish the good from the bad. Listen, the better from the best. The important from the insignificant and the permanent from the transient. End quote. Do you see how important discernment is for the unity of the church? Christians lacking in discernment will do what? They will be open to that which is bad. They will get into fights over that which is insignificant. And they will be willing to divide over that which is only transient and not permanent. Because they will not have the ability to determine what is important, what matters, what doesn't matter. One pastor described immature Christians like this. And I quote, they never seem to know their own mind or come to a settled conviction. Instead, their opinions tend to be those of the last preacher they heard or the last book they read, and they fall an easy prey to each new theological fad, end quote. It may sound really harsh to our modern sensitive ears, But make no mistake about this, Christians who don't exercise the powers of their discernment by constant exposure to the word of God and perseverance can be a very useful tool in the hands of Satan to bring about division within the church. Make no mistake about this. 
Spiritual immaturity and lack of discernment are no laughing matters. They can literally bring incredible harm to the church. This is why I won't get tired of telling you and telling me, let us read, let us study, let us meditate on the word of God day after day after day after day after day. And let us seek to understand and saturate ourselves with our Bibles before we read or hear anything else. You know, I I would say for every 30 minutes you spend on Facebook, try to spend maybe three hours on the word of God. We live in very dangerous times. My friends, this book, this Bible is the only firm foundation. Read it, seek to know it for the rest of your life. That's what you need. And finally, the fourth non-negotiable of Christian unity is simply this, truthful love, truthful love. Verses 15 and 16, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which is equipped. When each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Interesting thing that we find here, let me ask you a question. Is, is Paul creating a dichotomy? Is Paul creating a sharp distinction between love and truth? Is he really saying that truth can be unloving or that love can be untruthful? I don't think he's saying that. You see, truth is always loving and love is always truthful. It is our sin that seeks to separate the two. In all reality, you can't truly love someone if you compromise the truth. This is why when you see, and I know this is a sensitive subject, when when you see parents basically endorsing and embracing their children when they become homosexual or lesbian or they want to embrace whatever type of lifestyle they want and the parent comes and embraces them and says, uh, I'm going to love you uh, no matter what you decide. Well, that, that's not loving because that is an actual compromise of the truth. You cannot love someone if you compromise the truth. And on the other hand, truthfulness won't have its intended effect if it is not spoken in love. Will we ever achieve this balance here on earth? I am afraid not. We will always struggle. So what do we do? First, realize that you and I will always need to grow in this area. At times, we will emphasize love at the expense of truth, or we will emphasize truth at the expense of love. And we have all done that. The second thing we need to do is to keep fixing our eyes on the one who loved perfectly and spoke spoke perfect truth, the Lord Jesus Christ. We never remove our eyes from him. He is our redemption. He is our peace. He is our joy. And in him, we stand complete. But I want you to finally just remember this very short. Look at what what it says in verse 15. Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Remember this as a Christian, there is nothing else for you and I to grow into. As a Christian, there's nothing else for you and I to grow into. The purpose of the Christian life is not to grow deeper and deeper into certain political convictions or into certain political ideas. 
or to grow deeper and deeper into personal preferences and opinions. That is never the purpose of the Christian life. The only purpose of the Christian life and the only way we will maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace is to grow into Christ. That is the only thing that should matter to you. This is our only commitment in life to grow into Christ, to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Lord, we want to thank you for, for your word, which we know will never return to you empty, but it will always accomplish the purpose for which it was sent. And now I, I, I know, Lord, that you will take this imperfect sermon, but you can take it and make wonderful things. Father, help us to persevere in the faith. Help us to persevere in growing in unity until we attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Father, would you please protect our church? Grace Community Church here in Glen Rose. Protect us, Lord, from deceitful schemes, from false ideologies, from ideas that are seeking to destroy and divide. Help us, Lord, not to make our own personal preferences the number one priority, but always to submit to the authority of your word. Help us to understand it more, to read it more, to meditate upon it more, and shape our lives accordingly. And all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.